0: hello and welcome to another episode of adventures in.net. I'm sean clabo your host and with me today is your co-host why Luke. hey why how you doing hey good doing? good it's a little bit different time than than we normally record but i think it's working out for the the two of us yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. caleb couldn't make it this week i guess he had a a dinner that he had to yeah. uh, go to to (laughs) sometimes you you gotta you gotta pay attention to your friends and family so (laughs) (laughs) all right so today on the show we've got a good guest his name's bobby johnson and we're going to be talking about modern identity hi bobby how you doing i'm doing really good thanks for having me on oh thank you it's great to have you on the show
1: early in my career i figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't mostly by trial and error That's devchat.tv slash
0: So the topic for today, modern identity. Let's first start off with what's your background, what kind of things that you do, and yeah, uh, sure, how you got into this industry. Yeah, so I started out doing web development in the
2: uh, mid-90s, predominantly on the Microsoft stack. So I started out with ASP Classic, moved into uh, Web Forms, then into MVC. And throughout that whole period, I had a, a strong interest in open source. I, I like to go to conferences and, and publish anything that I write. Uh, I was a, a big, con- not a contributor to in Hibernate, but a big proponent of in Hibernate back in the day. I was involved in Alt.net for quite a while. We helped organize a couple conferences several years back. And I've uh, spent some time in uh, enterprise software development as well as uh, startup software development. So a company that you might know that I've worked for was uh, Cheeseburger.com. That was one of the startups that I worked for. I tend to like working in the startup space because I like having my fingers in all the pies. So, <laughs> But they're I not as stable references. as enterprise development, right? <laughs> so Food
0: references, I guess. Yeah.
3: yeah. <laughs> Wait, what, what is Cheeseburger.com? It sounds like an interesting... Um...
2: Cheeseburger.com was a meme site when meme sites were cool. There was a, a suite of like 70 different branded sites, all with tailored content to specific audiences. The big one being I Can't As Cheeseburger, which was mainly cat memes.
3: Okay. And <laughs> is it still around? Is it... Um, can we go
2: there uh, It ended up getting sold off to the same company in Israel that owns Ebum's uh, World. Oh, okay. If you're familiar Another with that I've website. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I ended up leaving out of there, going back into enterprise for a little while and... I don't know if you guys know him or not, but do you know Glenn Block? Former Microsoft guy, worked on the MEF team. Anyway, I ran into Glenn Block one day at a conference in uh, Portland called .NET Fringe. Uh, and he was working at Off 0 And he was recruiting for his team. And we got to talking about the needs that he had for his team. And he ended up recruiting me out of the enterprise I was working at the time. And I've been working at Auth0 for about two and a half years now.
0: Nice. And, so, and what Off Auth0?
2: Auth zero is a identity server for rent. So we will do all of your identity needs in the cloud, so that you
3: don't have to. (laughs) Okay, like an authentication as a service. Yes.
0: Uh Okay. The topic, uh, like I said, we're talking about uh, modern identity versus Mm -hmm. classic identity. So I guess how identity has changed over the years. Oh, identity has definitely changed over the years. And, you know, most people, when they think of identity,
2: they think of username and password. But it goes well beyond username and password to things like Active Directory to SAML, OAuth, and OpenID Connect. And all of these kind of, you know, jargon that I'm kind of throwing at you are intended to solve specific use cases in the identity realm. So, yes, username and password is still in use, but... OAuth layers on top of that in such a way to facilitate a type of interaction that wasn't possible
0: before, right? Nice. So this episode, I think, really came timely for me because right now I'm doing all my authentication against LDAP, just mm-hmm. cookie-based authentication. And you know, one of the tough things I think a lot of developers find with authentication and, and authorization, a lot, of, a lot of those things, is they don't do it very often. Because like Mm. the application, the the project that I work on, you know, we started it six years ago, and since then we've just kept on using the same authentication. Mm -hmm. But now we've got to switch over and start using OpenID Connect, and so I've got to revisit some of these things. And I think this is this episode is going to be nice for me. But uh, maybe we should start, you know, defining some of those terms. You know, what is OAuth and what is OpenID Connect, things like that. So OAuth, for for the
2: layman, is a really loaded term because if you go search for it on the internet, you're going to find a whole lot of bad information. And I I want to clearly define what OAuth is for you. OAuth is a delegated authorization protocol. And what that means is, let me give you an example. Say I, I am working at the company LinkedIn and... LinkedIn wants to help you grow your network of connections within LinkedIn, that sort of thing. And they know that uh, a lot of people use Gmail and they keep you know, lists of contacts in Gmail of people that they know that they've worked with, that sort of thing. And what LinkedIn would like to do is they would like to consume my Gmail contacts to send out invites to people that I know to grow my network on LinkedIn. One way that they could approach that problem is to just ask me for my LinkedIn or my Gmail credentials. Just say, hey, give me your Gmail username and password, and I'm going to reach out to Gmail and I'm going to pull your contacts in. And maybe I'll even use Gmail to send the invites out to where it looks like it's coming from you, that sort of thing. And this use case is, is very useful, right? Like I would want to do that. LinkedIn would want to do that. Gmail would want to provide that service. Right, But the implementation there is, is really tricky because, for one thing, I have to rely on LinkedIn to protect my Gmail credentials. Right, They're not as important to LinkedIn as they would be to Gmail. The security of my credentials is critical to Gmail because their business depends on it. And what LinkedIn is implementing is a, a small little feature of their application. It might not be as critical to them. Uh, but the, the security risk is even more di- bigger than that. Because I've given my credentials to LinkedIn, LinkedIn can act as me and do anything that I can do. So while LinkedIn wanted my credentials to read my contacts and send emails, They can also read my emails. They can delete emails. They could even delete my account if they wanted to, right? LinkedIn probably would never do that, but I'm just saying the possibility is there because I've given the the keys to my kingdom. And OAuth was designed specifically to solve that problem. So what OAuth intends to do is to delegate authorization to a third party on behalf of a user without exposing that user's credentials to the third party. And does that sound like it has anything to do with authentication?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think you say that. So it's like you got a group of friends and this third, you know, one friend is somebody that you both trust. Right. mm -hmm. And then uh, one says, okay, my name is George. Well, my name isn't really George. Mm -hmm. So my friend that the other guy trusts is going to say, no, that's not George. That's Sean. Mm-hmm. And is that kind of the, the path that's going there that there's, they both have to trust this like third party? or Well, in this case, the third party is LinkedIn, right? So okay. I'm the
2: user, I'm a Gmail user, and I want to grant access to my resources on Gmail to the third party LinkedIn. And the resources I want to grant them access to are
3: my contact list and the ability to send emails on my behalf. So like Gmail is the identity provided in this case. So it's more. Um, yes. Mm hmm. Yeah, so he's a, he's, a, he's a common friend that everyone trusts. Well,
2: we're, we're starting to get into that miscommunication on the internet right now, right? The, we're uh, looking at Gmail as an identity provider, but they're not really providing my identity in this use case. They're just providing access to LinkedIn based on what I have consented to give them. Okay. Right. So typically, the, the flow that you see is you go to LinkedIn and there's some button that says, you know, hey, send send uh, invite emails to my contacts and you click that and you get redirected to Gmail and your browser is pointed at the appropriate place to consume your Gmail credentials. At this point, if you're not logged into Gmail, Gmail asks you to log in, you provide your credentials, you're giving them to Gmail, not LinkedIn. Hmm. And then Gmail will pop up a dialogue that says, Hey user, LinkedIn has requested access to your contact list and to send email on your behalf. Are you okay with that? And you can click OK, and then you get redirected back to LinkedIn with some OAuth magic that, that grants that permission between the two parties.
3: So, so given that LinkedIn kind of has to implicitly trust Gmail, is there any kind That's- of like background work that has to be done? Like, Is there some sort of trust that has to be established between LinkedIn and Gmail?
2: Absolutely, privately? yeah. So to, to accomplish this through OAuth anyway, LinkedIn as a entity would need to come to Gmail and register as a known client. And Gmail would issue them uh, a client ID and a client secret. Uh, and they would provide okay. those credentials in the background when they're communicating with Gmail directly.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: Yeah. So one big catch here and one of the differentiators between OAuth and OpenID is that the access token that gets issued by Gmail, OAuth doesn't really give you a specification for the format of that token. All it really says is that if a client presents the token, the resource will accept it. So the only way a client can use an OAuth token is to send it back to the source of that token. OIDC does have a specified format for its tokens. It's a JSON web token, we call it JOT for short. And so the token in OIDC has meaning to both sides of the of the communication. So it's appropriate for OpenID Connect uh, ID tokens to read them and pull information out of them. So the, 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 the differentiation I wanna make between the two is, is this, I'll state it really clearly. OAuth is a delegated authorization protocol and OpenID Connect is an authentication protocol. I'm using a third party to tell me who a user is. Mm. So the communication that comes back has meaning to the application. Okay.
3: So so are we saying that OAuth is for that that first example where you wanted to just drag contact list out of Gmail? You don't really need Gmail doesn't need to know who is asking for it, as long as you have that access token, you should mm-hmm. to drag the information. Whereas OpenID is more for, for LinkedIn verifying that you logged in from, a, from that particular Gmail account.
2: Let's stay with the same scenario of uh, Gmail and LinkedIn, right? And say, we're, we're just going to talk about OpenID Connect for a moment. And the engineers at LinkedIn decided they no longer want to maintain a username and password store in their database, right? Sure. They had some kind of security leak, they panicked, they don't want to handle that stuff anymore. What they can do is they can instead, through OpenID Connect, say that all users are now going to authenticate through Google, and Google will maintain their username and password. We're kind of delegating the authentication out to Google, and they're providing us the identity of the user. So there are no username and passwords in this LinkedIn example at that point in LinkedIn. We're just relying on Gmail to authenticate that user and tell us who they are right? So it's about authentication. It's not necessarily about uh, authorization. You see the difference? I'm trying to split that. Yeah, yeah. yeah
3: definitely. Yeah, you're, you're basically, Gmail is, is the authenticator in this case. Mm-hmm. And LinkedIn d- doesn't care um, who the person is as long as um, they've got that open ID JWT token to say that um, mm-hmm. Gmail has actually logged them in. And it doesn't matter, I guess, whether they logged in via MFA or fingerprint or password. They just trust um, mm-hmm. Gmail has done its job to authenticate them.
2: Yes. So long as Gmail says that user is valid, we can trust yeah. the information in the, the token itself. Yeah. And there are several ways to validate that trust as well, right?
0: Okay, so OpenID Connect mm-hmm. allows to use a third party for what people typically used as username and password. So OpenID Connect allows you to
2: rely on an identity provider to provide you with identities in the same way that you rely on Active Directory to provide you with identities of your user. The difference is you're doing it over the public internet, uh, which you could do with like Azure AD and some tweaking. Azure AD also offers OpenID Connect for being able to do this, right?
3: Yeah, I think so, um, going back to what Sean was saying about how like developers... Um, don't have much experience in this or, you know, it's, it's not something they work on all the time. I'm, 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 so, I'm actually so glad that, that these these authentication as a service things that exist because mm-hmm. as a developer, like I am totally lost on authentication and I'm not confident in my own skills to, to be able to do it properly and do it with mm-hmm. the latest software patterns and all that stuff. So so I haven't used Auth0 yet, but I've used, I think I've used Firebase for authentication. I've used mm-hmm. Azure AD and all that stuff. And it just, it really just, it allows me to really outsource that that part of it that I'm just I'm just not smart enough to, to understand, you know? <laughs> <it's>, you know <laughs> well,
2: I, I, I would challenge you on that. I, I do think you are smart enough to understand it. There's just a lot of knowledge you have to gather to yeah. do it correctly, right? Yeah. And when I'm giving a talk like at a, a conference, I'll say uh, something along the lines of, you know, the, the developers who are having to interact with identity don't have a desire to be an expert in identity. They just want to get to the features they want to build, right? Mm-hmm. Identity is kind of an infrastructure concern for them.
3: Yeah, yeah. 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 Then you can focus on your own you know, business value-adding activities. So.
0: Mm-hmm. so as developers, are we typically going to work with OpenID Connect versus OAuth? Well, it depends on the use case that you have. Are you simply wanting to
2: authenticate users in your application? Then OpenID Connect is all you need. But if, say, you have uh, APIs that you'd like to secure as well, well, then you're going to have a mixture of OpenID Connect and OAuth. Mm. So APIs
0: use OAuth?
2: Well, you get an access token, which gives you access to an API. So you can send that token along with an API request, and the API will validate that token. Yeah,
3: So I guess in, in a Gmail example, the, the API is things like the contact list or mm-hmm. the end to send an email and all that stuff. And I guess all that stuff is defined by, by Gmail on a specific app-by-app app basis. Isn't it? There's no, there's, and there's no generic, there's no like language for OAuth. It's just the OAuth provider will just define this API to, to, to say, for, for this app, you need this particular access to, to access this particular functionality.
2: Typically in OAuth, you define the, the things that a client can do on behalf of a user in terms of scopes. And okay. scopes okay. Are, are related to permissions and privileges, but they're, they're slightly different. And I'll, I'll give you a, an example. Let's try to define those three words. So permissions are what someone can do with a resource. So for example, with maybe uh, Google Docs, you can read a document, you can create a document, or edit a document. Those are things you can do with the resource. Uh, A privilege is permissions for a resource that's assigned to a user or an application uh, because applications can communicate with each other, right? So applications can have privileges as well. An example of that would be Bobby can read documents and create documents. So me personally, I can do these things within the system. Note that I can read and create, but I can't delete, right? Even though it were, the system, the resource is capable of deleting a document, I personally don't have the privileges to do that. Yeah. Scopes are permissions an application ask a user to delegate. So LinkedIn would like to read my Gmail contacts on Bobby's behalf. Yeah. So effective permissions in that scenario are uh, user privileges unioned with the consented scopes. So the things that user can do along with the scopes I allowed that application to have on my behalf. Does that make sense? There's definitely a lot of jargon in this space and I find myself having to define those quite a bit. So in, in terms of effective permissions, just to give you an example of that, Bobby is okay with LinkedIn reading contacts on his behalf and Bobby has privileges to read the contact requested.
3: Yeah, that makes sense. So, so when, when a user logs in, like, like you were saying, that, like, let's say LinkedIn is using Gmail or Google for um, authentication. Mm-hmm. So they actually, from, from a website level, they, they click on the login button. They'll get redirected to, to, to Gmail, won't they? To actually do the login. Is that yes, right? that's correct. Okay. And how does Gmail prevent like, someone from just creating a fake Gmail page? and then entering the credentials in. Sure. So, OpenID Connect is actually built on top of OAuth. So,
2: it adds some primitives and uh, a couple endpoints to your authorization server for achieving single sign-on. So, OIDC communicates with Google the same way OAuth 2 does. You have to register, you get client credentials, and those credentials are sent with the communication to Gmail. Okay. Now, I need to disambiguate that a little bit. When I talk about client credentials, we we have a, a distinction between a confidential client and a public client. So a confidential client is any application that can prove its identity to the authorization server, meaning it can send the client ID and client secret in a secure method. So if you're thinking back in the days of like uh, PHP or uh, web forms, you know, you have a web server that can reach out to Google's API and communicate with it outside of a user machine, right? Yeah. So that, that would be a confidential client. Uh, yeah. A public client, on the other hand, would be something like uh, your cell phone, an application running on your cell phone, or maybe even a single page application those are not secure enough to be able to store a client secret. So there are some different grant types within OAuth for each of those client types. To answer your question, we need to just kind of define, well, what, how are we attempting to authenticate? Are we doing it from a, a confidential client or a public client? Because it changes
3: based on which one you have. So would the confidential client mainly be your backend? Yes. Mm-hmm. So you the user would log in from the front end, they'd give you a token, you'd you'd authenticate them, and then let's mm-hmm. say you needed more information from the identity provider, then mm-hmm. you'd use did you then the back end would act as a confidential client to communicate with auth um, off zero or
2: in the terms of a, a confidential client, you're probably going to be using what's called the authorization code grant. Yeah. So let's just kind of quickly run through what that means user clicks the login button and they get directed to link Gmail. They log in, Gmail gets their consent, and then they return the user back to LinkedIn through their browser with what's called an access code or authorization code in the URL that they're using for the redirect. So in the query string, there'll be something like authorization code equals some string right? And that string is okay to go through the browser like that, because, but the string alone cannot be used to exchange for an access token. So I, I get redirected back to LinkedIn. LinkedIn's backend then takes the code along with its client credentials and queries Gmail directly with the three to get an access token back. So the access token never goes out to the uh, browser itself in that case yeah which would be different with a single page application right so you have a uh, a server that's capable of maintaining state so that the access token can sit there and it also can secure its own client credentials
0: okay yeah so i think most developers are going to be in our scenario they're going to be developers for like linkedin mm-hmm. so they're trying to set up their application so that somebody can log in using google Credentials. Their, yeah, their Google account, basically. Right, right. Yeah. So for those developers, you know, what does it take to get started and get their application set up so that they can then use either Auth0 or Google or something like that to handle those credentials? So
2: because the combination of OAuth and OIDC are very well specified you're typically going to be using an SDK to handle most of these interactions for you. So for a developer uh, who maybe wants to uh, interact with Gmail or Google to do authentication, they're going to pull down a SDK, they're going to go to uh, Google, and they're going to register their application with them and receive client credentials. And then they're going to pass those client credentials around each time they're interacting with, with Google directly.
0: So with the SDK, you know, there's probably some good documentation out there for for using that. Mm-hmm. Is there also a lot of providers, do they have uh, starter kits or things like that? So you can actually see examples of code that's written and yeah, well
2: I I don't want to sound like I'm hawking off zero but uh sorry, yeah we we have uh, it's okay okay yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Basically when you when you sign up for an off zero account you'll go in and you'll you'll create an application there and we give you quick starts which basically show you the SDKs for your particular programming environment. So if you're in Java or .NET or Node or something like that, we have quick starts for each one of those platforms for implementing authentication and, and walk you through it. Nice.
0: Well, mm-hmm. I'm, stuck, I'm still stuck in classic ASP. Is there something for me? <laughs> no, <pretty>. uh, absolutely. <laughs> we,
2: we support PHP, which pretty much is very similar to classic right. ASP. I'm not sure we have an SDK for it, though, but I'm sure we would accept community contributions of it. <laughs>
1: All right. <laughs> Have you heard of Atwood's Law? He says that anything that can be built in JavaScript eventually will be built in JavaScript. And that includes mobile apps. You can build awesome mobile apps and Apple TV and other apps with React Native. Come check us out every week as we talk about some of the ins and outs of building mobile apps with JavaScript and with React on React Native Radio. You can find it at reactnativeradio.com.
0: So we we talked about tokens. You know, what Mm -hmm. kind of information comes along with those tokens and how can they be used? Sure.
2: So there are three tokens when we're talking about the combination of OAuth and OIDC. OAuth itself defines two types of tokens. An access token, and that's the thing that you send along uh, with a request to an API for you know, fetching and, and interacting with data. That token, like I mentioned before, is opaque. It really only has meaning to the API that you're calling for. It doesn't have meaning to the client itself. It also defines something called a refresh token. If you've ever gone through an OAuth flow where you, know, you get a consent screen and the, that consent screen says something about offline access, then what you're requesting in that point is a refresh token. And what that allows you to do is exchange the refresh token for a renewed access token. Because usually access tokens are very short-lived. You know, you might have your access token last three minutes or a day, but a refresh token is very long-lived and allows you to be able to get new access tokens. OAuth came along and added an ID token to the mix. And an ID token, like I said, is formatted using a JSON web token. And it's going to carry information about the user. It's going to carry information about like your name, your email address, and it, the token is a json web token formatted which means that it's a signed token that comes along so you can validate it in your client isn't that what the open id connect thing
3: is instead of, yes. oh,
2: oh. Mm-hmm. Oh. so id tokens were added by open id connect
3: mm-hmm. oh okay so yeah. going back to access tokens and refresh tokens i've always been a little mm-hmm. bit confused so like you're saying that the refresh token is this thing that you're supposed to, it, it has to be anything more protected than the the access token because the access token is just a like a, it's just for one call but the refresh token is saying that you have to keep is to, to generate the access tokens. Yes,
2: so when when we talk about these things, we kind of talk about the blast radius of a token actually escaping into the wild, an access token leaking out. You know is not. A good thing, but it expires in a certain period of time. Mm. So if you're worried about your access tokens you know, leaking out and you want to kind of lock them down, you can set the expiration smaller and smaller. They don't necessarily have to be one-time use, mm. but say you set them to 30 seconds. And so if that token gets out, it's only going to be able to be used nefariously for 30 seconds. Mm. Right. Uh, a refresh token, the blast radius is kind of big because you can use it to generate new access tokens. So you want to store them more
3: securely than you would an access token. And would a re- refresh token have an expiry date as well, or would, would that just last forever?
2: You can have an expiry date on a refresh token, but typically they're very long-lived, like maybe six months, a year.
3: Oh, yeah. So just, just wondering then, just taking an example of a, like a Spar app, like, like an, an Angular or a Vue Spar app, I mm-hmm. log into um, Auth0 I get that token. Is that a refresh token or an access token in, in that case?
2: So if you're working in a, a single page application, you're going to be using one of two OAuth grant types. You're going to be using the implicit grant type, or you're going to be using the Auth code with proof key for code exchange. Neither of those grant types allow you to get a refresh token.
3: Okay, so it is just an access Because token.
2: you never want to send a refresh token to a public client.
3: Oh, okay. That's only it for confidential clients. Exactly, okay. yeah. Okay, sure. Um, and then once I've got the access token, never been sure where I'm supposed to store it on the, on the browser. Like mm-hmm. I've heard local storage is actually not a great place to store the access token. Is that true? or if So where should I be storing it? That is
2: true, actually. Local storage is available or vulnerable in a number of ways. So storing your access tokens in there is is kind of not a good idea, especially if you want to have a high level of security. So if maybe you're running an ad network in your site or something like that, and JavaScript that you don't own gets run on your page, they have access to the same local storage as as your JavaScript. Sure. right? So our recommendation at Auth0 is to store access tokens in memory. So what I mean by that is just a variable in your JavaScript that holds the access
3: token for the duration of the session. When you refresh the page, wouldn't it? Wouldn't you just would you have to reauthenticate again? Or
2: well, there are ways of working around that. Yeah. So because you have authenticated with the identity provider and you have a session open with the identity provider itself, you can mm. re-request the access token directly behind the scenes without the user having to re-authenticate. So. If you mm. refresh the uh, browser, you can reach back out to the identity provider and get a new token yeah. uh, as long as the user's browser ha- has a session with the identity provider.
3: Mm. So I guess there's a little bit of performance delay from from a, in an, in that scenario, but being being a smart spa app, you wouldn't normally refresh the page anyway, right so sure, yeah. Mm.
2: I wouldn't say the the performance is huge, like a huge hit. You know, you just see some flashing on the screen uh, for a second or two. Mm. But yeah, that's that's what we recommend doing is not storing it in local storage, but
3: just maintaining it in memory. Mm. Okay. And what about cookie storage? Would, would you recommend doing it there?
2: If you can, yes, absolutely. If you're interacting with all first-party applications, meaning the single-page application is communicating with a backend that you own, and they're mm-hmm. on the same domain, then absolutely yep. send the access token down as a cookie. I mean, cookies okay. have been around for, what, 20, 30 years now? We, we understand how they work. We understand how to secure them. So okay. where you might trip up in that is if you need to use an access token to consume a resource on a separate domain. So that cookie's not going to go along with that request, yeah. right? Because it's for a specific domain.
3: Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So these uh, tokens, are they subject to, like, man in the middle attacks? Well,
2: they could be, sure. But if you're not validating the tokens, an ID token specifically comes with a signature that is exposed. The signing key is exposed by the identity provider itself. And you can actually validate the signature with the payload to verify that it hasn't been tampered with in transit. I'm specifically talking about single-page applications in that mm-hmm. instance. With a confidential client, you don't you, you probably still want to do some validation of the token, but you're probably communicating back end to back end over TLS, so there's less mm-hmm. of an opportunity for a man-in-the-middle attack.
3: I think most even, even most web pages would probably be using HTTPS now anyway, right? So um, mm-hmm. that man-in-the-middle thing is probably unless you're not using HTTPS, it's probably not a not a real threat. So.
0: Mm-hmm. What I was thinking is that, say, Google or me as the user wants to not allow LinkedIn to do these things anymore. Mm-hmm. Can those, those permissions and tokens be revoked? Absolutely.
2: Typically, you would go to the identity provider that you've given consent uh, from and you revoke the uh, consent. And that's one of the other nice things that refresh tokens actually introduce into this mix Mm -hmm. is that we have to hand the refresh token to the identity provider to get a new access token that gives the identity provider to check that revocation list and say, oh, no, I'm not supposed to issue
3: them anymore. Okay. So when you log into your own own backend via an access token, your backend will actually speak to the identity provider to make sure that 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 access token that, that was given to you um, is still valid? Would that be true?
2: Typically, you, you can do that. You can do some form of introspection where you're sending the token to the identity provider for them to tell you that it's uh, valid. But that introduces a lot of network chattiness. So mm. typically, we try to leave our use our tokens in a stateless manner. So the identity provider gives us their public signing keys and each token is signed. I'm talking now in the OAuth case or uh, Auth 0 case yeah each one is signed so if i get their public keys and i get a token i can then validate that token without actually having to communicate with them i can cache the keys for some period of time
3: yeah but if uh, you and, do that then you can't revoke it until that cache is is like expired right
2: that's correct of the access token but remember yeah. access tokens are intended to be very short lived
3: yeah sure so you have a small
2: window of of blast radius
3: mm. another question i i had was so We've talked about like LinkedIn trusting Gmail and stuff. But for, for me, like, and maybe it's just bad user behavior, but mm-hmm. every time I go to a site and it says you can log in with Facebook or I can log in with Gmail, mm-hmm. I don't like doing that. I don't know. I don't know. Why. I just feel like it's kind of... I, I don't want to be giving Facebook or Gmail any more information. So I'm wondering, like, as an identity provider, aside from knowing what websites you're logging into, which I assume... Mm-hmm. They can, they can do. Is there anything else that you're giving to... If you, when you log into Facebook or you log into Gmail, is there any information that you're giving to Facebook?
2: Well, it's all wrapped up in the scopes that the, your application, your consuming application, uh, the client is requesting at the authentication point, right?
3: Sure. So, so, so that consent screen
2: is going to pop up and tell you, this is all of the information that the client has requested. Yeah. When you, you give consent, we're going to send them all of that information.
3: Okay. So the only thing you're giving you are letting Facebook know is that you've tried to log in to that page or you tried to give the contacts your contact list to this particular website, but nothing else. Like there's no other communication between the websites or any data being passed.
2: Yes. I mean the intention of OAuth is the user grants consent to the data they want to be available to the client. Right. So the the choice is in your hands. Now there are definitely some nefarious ways of prompting people to uh, give me more scopes, mm. but you're, you still have to grant that consent to do it. Sure. And you know, logging into Facebook and logging into Twitter or uh, logging in using Facebook or logging in using Twitter is not the only use case, right? At Off 0 we have the G Suite accounts, right? And that's our primary identity across the entire company. I log into Slack using my G Suite account. I log into... Expensify to log all my expenses using my Google account. Sure. Right? So it's not just about social scraping of your data. Mm. <laughs> it's just about yeah. having one central location of identities that allow me access to all the applications to be able to do my job. Yeah.
3: And I think at the end of the day, that's actually a, like, despite my reluctance to log into other websites using Facebook, I think that's actually the safer way because it means that only one website has, has the ability, like has my password, I guess, which mm. is Facebook and you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not sure whether I trust Facebook as a company, but I do trust them to, to protect my identity at least, because you know, if if they if that leaks, then they stand to lose you know millions, probably billions of dollars, I kind of think mm-hmm.
2: so, Well, there's another way to look at it as well, right? If you're using your Facebook account to log into Twitter and to log into Twitch and to log into Reddit and all these other places, you have one place to go change your password that secures all those places right? So, you know, you go on to have I been pwned and you put in your email and password and it's like, oh no, I've leaked. You can just go to Facebook, change your password and you're good to go. The other benefit is that for a small development team, Facebook has a much larger dedicated team to identity and securing identities, right? So you can kind of leverage their skill set and their effort for a very small cost within your application.
3: Yeah, and you can. I guess there's all these features like like MFA and and all those things that if you didn't use an identity provider, you would have to implement yourself, and that would yes be probably much um, much more expensive than just using mm. an authentic provider. So
2: sure, one of the interesting things we're we're talking about OAuth and uh, OpenID Connect specifically, but where these problem spaces get really interesting and in working with is when you have different protocols that you need to authenticate folks through. There's WS Fed, which you guys might be familiar with, for mm. federating identity around a uh, Windows network. Yep. There's Saml, OpenIDC, and username and passwords. If you needed to support each one of those protocols to be able to access all of the applications within your organization, that can get very complex very quickly. And so, identity as a service provider like Off uh, Zero. Or ping or Okta kind of solve those problems really nicely for you. You let us deal with that complexity. And mm-hmm. your application only needs to really be concerned with OpenID Connect and OAuth. Right. Mm-hmm. So your surface of interaction is much, much smaller at that point. And that's where a lot of our big customers come from. They have problems like that. You know, they started out with one product that they used, maybe username and password, and then they acquired another company that only supports SAML. And then they bought an application off the shelf that only uses OAuth, right? And Mm -hmm. now they've got to manage all that complexity. Well, let us deal with
0: that sort of thing. Yeah, sure. So another analogy that I think a lot of people might be familiar with is like on your phone, when you install an app, it says, you know, this app wants permissions to your microphone. This app wants permission to your contacts, Mm -hmm. each different little thing. And those are the things that come along with that, uh, what you're giving in the token between Google, and LinkedIn. Correct.
2: Yeah, those would be the equivalent of a scope, right? Mm. I'm getting it. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> It's nice. not dirty as mud anymore. Nice. You're doing good, Bobby. My work here is done. <laughs> <laughs> so what kind of things does uh, you know, Auth0 help out with uh, along these lines? Is it just an you know, identity provider or is it does more than that to help out the de- developers? We will help you with
2: authentication of your users and with protection of your APIs. So we act as both a OAuth provider and an OpenID Connect provider. And then we can also reach into your third-party identity providers, depending on what the protocol is that you want to use. So say you have internally, you have Active Directory that stores all of your employees. Well, we can reach in there to do authentication and maybe pull out some profile information. But then you also have a large customer base that is maybe that customer authenticates via username and password in an application that you know, stores that logic in a SQL server. Well, we can bridge that gap for you as well. And then your applications and APIs only need to know about Auth0 and OpenID Connect for authentication and OAuth for authorizing access of APIs. So we kind of simplify your identity blast radius, for lack of a better word. You know, there's only one protocol you need to deal with. And we'll just connect in seamlessly to all the other protocols that you need to
0: work with. Hmm. So then for new users, they'd all be directed over to Auth0 to create an account?
2: That's correct. Yeah. You can customize the UI. We have a full suite of user management tools like create an account. I forgot my password, reset passwords, MFA. All those things are built into our platform. And all of it is customizable. And we also offer custom domains. So from your end user's point of view, it still looks like they're going to your domain for that authentication. You would just have some subdomain like uh, accounts.example.com.
3: So is there a... a how, how, what's the pricing structure? How, what's, how do you guys monetize? Is it like is it like a freemium thing? where? Sure, we definitely have a
2: freemium model. You can get in and start playing with it absolutely free. Uh, the next step up from that is the Developer Pro account, which I believe right now costs $29 a month. And we bill typically on active users per month. So someone has come and logged in at least once, once in a month. That's one active user. Yep. Uh, and then we have some, the enterprise features that I spoke about, like reaching into Active Directory or integrating with SAML. Those tend to be enterprise pricing and you need to actually talk to a salesperson about that. I don't get involved in that stuff.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Any other questions why? I, I, um, I'm doing pretty good. I'm, I feel um, a lot better now. i a lot. A, about that. 45 minutes ago. <laughs> awesome. <laughs>
2: Well, hey, you guys are are welcome to reach out anytime. I'm on Twitter. I'm on my own website, and I do Twitch live streaming. So, so feel free well, to we'll pop in that. and ask
0: questions. Yeah, let our listeners listeners know how to uh, to get you there: at Twitter or Twitch or things like that. Yeah,
2: sure. So my uh, Twitter handle is not myself. Uh, same for GitHub. Uh, my website is I am not myself, and <laughs> I'm a member of Jeff Fritz's uh, Live Coders team. So, you can find my Twitch channel at notmyself.livecoders.dev. That's not confusing
3: it. at all. <laughs>
2: uh, yeah. Uh, I, I've been known not to sign up to a website because I can't get my username.
0: So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's not uh, too many Bobby Johnsons around. Oh, no, I mean, not myself. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, you're not yourself. You're not Bobby, but you're Bobby. Yeah. Yeah.
2: (laughs) It's 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 kind of an inside joke for myself. I I grew up in a very small town in northwest Arkansas and I did a lot of chicken farming in my formative years. And so I moved out to the West Coast and got into tech and I'm making, you know, tons of money. And obviously the life I'm living is not mine. I'm I'm not that guy that grew up in Arkansas anymore. So Uh, that's that's kind of where it came from.
0: uh. (laughs) Good thing.
1: Are you building applications with Vue.js? Then you need to check out the Views on Vue podcast. Every week, we bring in a guest panelist from the Vue community and talk about the interesting things being built with Vue or the changes coming in its ecosystem. You can find it all at viewsonvue.com.
0: All right, so I think we should probably move on to picks. I'll be be glad to go first, and uh, I think you'll like this one, why? I've actually Uh, been watching a number of Australian TV shows recently, They're probably not new shows, but they're kind of older shows. And yeah. one of them I found on Netflix is called Aussie Gold Hunters. Oh, and okay. I have I've watched the gold shows, you know, up in Alaska for years and years. And then we found some on Netflix. We found this one, uh, the Aussie Gold Hunters is pretty nice. It's actually kind of interesting because in Australia, they don't have the water that they have in, up in Alaska. So they've got to do a lot more dry gold searching and things like that. And they actually walk around with metal detectors are on the surface and and through the metal detectors they're just finding these gold nuggets here and there. So it doesn't oh, okay. look that quite that easy, but uh it looks like fun. Uh, uh, I'm not I gonna mean, I'm not gonna quit my job and go do that. But
3: I think gold is worth quite a lot. If you can find nuggets it's probably worth like thousands of dollars, right? It say. could be,
0: yeah, yeah. And there's also been another show that's been on TV here that's talking about opal hunters finding oh. opals in Australia. And yep. one of the group is in uh Kubrapi? Oh yeah, yeah. South so Australia. yeah, yep. Yeah. Kubrapia in Australia. There's another group that's in, you know, New South Wales. So lots of interesting there. So check out if you got Netflix. Look at Aussie Gold Hunters. No, oh, cool. All right. What's your pick? Why?
3: Okay, so my pick this week is actually a like it's a YouTube video that kind of just showed up on my just on my recommended list one day. Um, it's called Time Lapse of the Future, and I normally wouldn't just show like a no- just recommend this normal. YouTube video but it actually kind of just blew me away so the so the video is about what will happen to the to the universe like in the future and the idea is like at start is, it's like a time lapse. so one second is is equivalent to like one year but then after like five seconds it'll double so then you know one second is equal to two years and it'll just keep going and going and it, it actually goes for like half an hour so, it, so the time the rate of time just exponentially increases and it's just super interesting because it's not really about what will happen in like a million years or even like a billion years it will happen is it's, it's about what will happen in the it will, it's about what will happen with the universe in about like like a trillion trillion years you know like numbers that you can't even kind of imagine you know and you know things like it will, it will discuss like things like black holes just kind of eventually evaporating into nothing you know every proton in the universe decaying and things like that so So yeah, I just thought it was just a
0: really, really interesting video.
2: That sounds kind of awesome. I got to check that out.
0: Yeah, I think I saw it once. Yeah, it it was pretty interesting. So yeah, Yeah. definitely check it out. All right, Bobby, what do you got for picks?
2: Okay, okay. So I got two. I got two because, you know, this is probably the only time I'm going to be on your show. So I got to do as much as I possibly can, right? (laughs) So, And I, I have to call out my friends on the Live Coders team. If you're not familiar with live coding on Twitch, I highly recommend that you get into it. If you've gone to a conference where you sit in a chair and you have someone talk at you sort of thing, uh, live coding on Twitch is is kind of the opposite of that. Live coding is we'll, we'll communicate with each other through chat and I'll build some software and talk through exactly what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Or I might decide today I'm going to learn React and I'm going to go read the docs, You know, bring the docs up on stream and I'm going to start writing some code and I'm going to like go through the basics and my audience can tell me what I'm doing wrong and that sort of thing. And it's really fun. It's really interactive. And there are over a 100 of us in the group at this point who do live streams like what I just described all times of the day on just about any topic you could possibly want to learn about. Uh, So if you check out livecoders.dev, that'll take you to our team page on Twitch, and you can start digging in. The next one is actually some advice if you use Visual Studio Code, and you typically interact with APIs a lot, like using Curl or something like Postman. There's an extension called REST Client that I absolutely love, and I show people how awesome it is every time uh, I have an opportunity So definitely check out REST Client as an extension. It is far superior to Postman.
3: Oh, really? Because I actually really like Postman. So you're saying it's actually better than that? Okay.
2: Oh, yes. Like originally Postman was really, really nice, but they kept layering features and features on. It's gotten quite cluttered. I really like the way REST Client works, like directly within my code editor. And it's just very easy to use. The interesting thing about it is you can create a file called an HTTP file that's just a text file with some parameters in it. And you can actually check it into source code. So like as a live example of how to communicate with your API sort of thing, which is really cool.
3: So that that live coders thing, is that like, so is it like a leader that kind of just does the coding or is it like just hundreds of people collaborating on one piece of code. Oh,
2: well, they're individual channels, right? So we're collectively a team, but yeah. I would be streaming on my own channel and people come in and watch me stream. And uh-huh. the interaction would be either through chat or sometimes we do pair programming sessions where yeah. like two live coders are on the same team interact or stream interacting with each other. Yeah, that would actually
3: would be interesting, actually.
2: Yeah. How do, you, how, do
0: you, how do you get over that being self-conscious about, you know, yeah. actually letting somebody see all your you know, <laughs> like, dirty laundry coding of all your mistakes and things like that?
2: Failure that. is the best teacher. <laughs> you know, I've been coding for 20 years and I still use Google to, to look something up because I can't remember everything, right? Yeah.
0: Nobody else sees you doing that.
2: <laughs> yeah. Being a developer is the process of learning, right? You're always learning new things. And showing junior developers and new people to developers a twenty year veteran still needs to do the same kind of uh, banging his head against the desk sort of thing is is a positive right mm. so i I'm not embarrassed by having mistakes sometimes Sorry. i I do something wrong and I admit to it you know it's a learning process it helps think- with
0: imposter syndrome then it does
2: for me, yeah. <laughs>
3: I think awesome. I, I I wouldn't mind yeah checking it out, but I think if I if I did do a live stream, it'd be mostly me googling stuff. Like <laughs> I'm just <laughs> stuck just <like> over <overplayed laughs> hour reading up on stuff. So like, yeah, well, then, you know, you don't be.
2: necessarily have to stream yourself, right? You can just watch others do it. Like uh, Jeff yeah. Fritz is a very accomplished live streamer, and
0: his channel is very entertaining. So, mm. cool, nice, mm-hmm. awesome. Well, thanks, Bobby, for taking the time out of your day and being with us. It was it was great. I I definitely think. At least in my mind, I'm in a better place now than I was. Well, we'll see how
2: after you've slept and (laughs) how you feel tomorrow. But thanks Uh, for having me on. I greatly appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And if any of the listeners, if they want to reach out to me or the show, they can find me on Twitter. I'm at .NET Superhero. So that's a... Easy one to remember, too.
2: That sounds like an awesome streaming name.
0: <laughs> 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 da, da, da. All right, guys. Thanks very much. And we'll catch everybody on the next episode of
1: AdventuresIn.net. See ya. Later. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.